Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. I'm Karen from Ireland. If you go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media, you can get exclusive podcasts, videos, and more. Go on, go on, go on. You know you want to. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts, TV. And this week, it was one of the biggest true crime books of the decade and played a role in finding the Golden State Killer. We'll talk about HBO's adaptation of I'll Be Gone in the Dark. We'll also look at the long, slow road of turning a KKK Grand Wizard into a mainstream politician. We'll review the David Duke-focused season four of Slow Burn. Join me to get that done and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist, and newly 50 years old guy, Mm. Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Happy birthday. Thank you so much. It's so nice. You only look like 50 and a half. (laughs) No, I think I'm pretty well preserved for somebody. It's not bad. My now advanced age. Yes. When am I, what guys, when do you get the uh, AARP card? Isn't the AARP just a lobbying group for old people? I <laughs> so I wanted to send Kevin like one of those singing birthday telegrams. And Ken said, huh. they don't do that during the pandemic. And I said, but they'll go on his porch. And Ken goes, why don't you send him a stripper gram? I said, I'm not sending him a stripper gram. <laughs> I'll take that. I thought that's what you were talking about. <laughs> no, like the people that dress up in little outfits and come and sing to you. Yeah. Those are called stripper grams. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what's did you decide to send him instead? It's a surprise. Okay. <laughs> Nothing. Oh, okay. Surprise. Surprise. Send you, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I gave Kevin for his birthday? A $5 bill that I stole from his wallet. That's what he got from his birthday from me. <laughs> yeah, it's the same thing I got for Father's Literally, Day, Literally, it's the too. same $5 yeah. bill because you put it back in your wallet. I took it out again and put it in your card again. Yeah. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and certified cat lady, our favorite non-Karen, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. Hello. Good evening. I am definitely not Karen, despite what my family says. <laughs> and finally, our captain of Oak Cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as The City Trilogy host of the very popular Strange Arrivals podcast and our Patreon book club host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. All right, Kevin, you teased something in our Facebook group a couple weeks ago. Yeah. That I think we're allowed to announce now. It's official. We can tell people oh, I'm, what I'm is feeling, happening. I'm feeling a little bit like weird in the head and, and like I got a little goosebumpy on my arms. Brace what yourself. What is happening? Crime Writers on is now also going to be... A major feature film. A television show on Facebook Watch. Wow. Now, I call it television show. It's not, it's not, it's not really TV. a television show. <laughs> it's a, well, it's, it's a... What do we even it's call stuff experience. like that? It's a experience. Same place that brought us Limetown. No, it's, I mean, I mean, technically, yes, it's yes. Facebook, and it's the same platform, and you can find it on Facebook. But it's really just more like a video version of our podcast. It is. We're partnering with Facebook Watch. They've asked us to put on 10 episodes. Mm-hmm. So our next 10 episodes can still 
will be the podcast, mm-hmm. and there's going to be a portion of the recorded podcast, which will be the video version of the show. Right. And so, in order to watch it, you go to Facebook. Anybody know how to get to Facebook? Yeah. Okay, everybody's cool with where that is. Yeah. And you just go in the search section and you just type in Crime Writers On, and it'll bring you to our page in the video, and it's going to be living on both our page, and you can get it in our official Crime Writers On Facebook group. So we want you to watch it and share it. And you and like, s- if you have the Facebook Watch app on your smart TV and you want to see us be all huge. That's right. <laughs> oh, my God. We could have a watch party. Watching ourselves? Could, yes. <laughs> yes. I'm totally doing it. I don't want to watch myself sitting in a closet in my basement, but I understand that other people might mm-hmm. want to watch us do that. So I have to ask you guys, um, can we talk a little bit more in the after show about what it's been like to convert this whole show to video? Because it's been a little weird. Yeah. <laughs> Taking a couple of swings at it. When is the first video coming out on Facebook, Kevin? Well, you know, our podcast comes out on Mondays. Mm-hmm. And so every Tuesday, yep. the video version will premiere at 8 p.m. Mm-hmm. on Facebook Watch. Our first episode will be out July 7th. Okay. So that's a week from... It's a week from today. Okay. So what we should also mention that over the summer, we mm-hmm. should give you a little bit of a heads up. As right. we do every year, over the summer... We are going to our every other week schedule. Right. Because we want to survive the year. That's true. <laughs> yeah. We uh, get a little burnt out this time of year. We need to take a little bit of a break. So instead of going on like a hiatus like some shows do, we'd like to just take every other week just That's for right. like four episodes or so. So Yeah. So we will be back next week. But then we're off and then back the following week. Right. And yeah. next week's show will also be on video on Facebook. That's right. From here on, the next 10 episodes. It's very exciting. It means we got to like, uh, you know, straighten up and... I'm so looking forward to getting unsolicited diet tips from the internet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. If they loved your laugh. Uh, they're going to love my double chin. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and Toby, you're going to get some uh, decorating pointers, I think. Yes. I'm predicting. Yes. So let's talk more about it in the uh, the after show. Let's talk more about it in the after show. Also in the after show, um, I want to talk about a couple things we've watched lately. So Lara and Toby, is there anything that you've watched that you want to talk about and maybe spill the whole plot of like Kevin and I are going to do on the after show? We want you to do the same thing, all right? So think about it while we record this podcast. All right. I've been watching hours and hours of Crime Writers On. <laughs> I'm sure you have. Pretty bleary-eyed. <laughs> All right, you guys ready to record a podcast? Yeah. Yep. Leading off. In the 1970s, David Duke was America's best-known white supremacist. The American white people are searching and are reaching out for a movement, and the Ku Klux Klan is that movement. Louisiana's David Duke believed the nation wanted an inspirational white leader. The former KKK Grand Wizard thought it should be him. But after a failed presidential run, Duke refashioned himself by downplaying his more hateful beliefs and wrapping himself in the existing mainstream political structure. There's something very scary about the election of David Duke. The former imperial wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. Ex-Klansman David Duke. David David Duke. Duke. We had no big political endorsements. Even the President of the United States came out against us. But we won! Duke's small victories emboldened him to run for higher and higher offices. But not everyone was buying his facade as a clean-cut, reformed white supremacist. Duke was a master scapegoater. He was saying things about taxes and welfare that people wanted to hear. In the latest season of Slate's Slow Burn, host Josh Levin chronicles Duke's methodical journey from fringe figure to mainstream politician, a journey not fully appreciated by the establishment until it was too late. 
Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from the first few episodes of Slow Burn. So if you want to remain spoiler free, just go to the estimated time code in our show notes for our thumbs up or thumbs down review. Now, Kevin, yeah, I know that you were wondering why this story was chosen for slow burn. Why is that? Well, well um, whereas, you know, the first two seasons dealt with impeachment crises, this didn't seem like um, talking about an event, mm. right? It's about one person's climb to notoriety or infamy or whatever. So it's kind of like, oh, does this really, you know, strictly fit the slow burn mold? Hmm. Essentially, we're going to tell you a story about how it got, how it it took a long time for it to get to the critical mass. Hmm. And it wasn't sort of until I got to episode two that I said, oh, yeah, there is that story here. Because David Duke does have a long biography before he runs successfully for office that he's out there. And how is he getting power and how is he raising money? And how is he, you know, getting his name recognition? And could it he have been better marginalized along the way, disenfranchised? Yes, he could have been. He could have I been. I just want to say for the record, yes, he could have been put off to the side more consistently. But for some reason, he was not. Mm-hmm. Lara Bricker, um, you know, this is a very timely and relevant podcast. What do you think about the timing of the drop of this slow burn story about David Duke? Well, I, I definitely think with everything that's going on right now in the country, it's like slow burn has some sort of like magic eight ball because clearly they've been working on this podcast for quite some time. Mm-hmm. But the timing of this podcast coming out as we're in the middle of George Floyd's death and people standing up against racism and systemic racism and groups like the KKK that have perpetuated that is really timely. So I think listening to this, it's it's definitely something that I feel like a lot of people can get good information out of at the current time that we're living in history. Toby, what do you think of the slow burn nature of this? Because to me, I think a lot of people in America right now are looking around saying, How is it that people can be in public carrying Nazi flags in a parade, carrying nooses around, carrying literal torches and chanting racist slogans in the streets of America? Like, how did we get here? But isn't the Duke story a huge part of the genesis of how we got here and the normalization of David Duke as he kept trying to attain all these political positions? Yeah, I mean, I I think what David Duke sort of realized is that like there hasn't been a time, at least since I've been sort of aware, where there haven't been sort of these fringe clan marches or, or Nazi marches or whatever. And it's usually like 30 guys in, in robes and then like a thousand protesters yelling at them. It, it's kind of a spectacle. But what I think David Duke realized is that there's a lot of people who aren't willing to do that. But if those views are seen as being more respectable, if they are put forward as being acceptable to people, that that sort of is a different proposition entirely. So I think what what he kind of realized is if I can put a more gentle, isn't exactly the word, but more acceptable face on racism, that there will be people who will be able to say, okay, I'm comfortable being a racist under these circumstances. I mean, he went from being a Klan guy to being a political powerhouse in Louisiana, even though he never won 
anything statewide, mm. uh, his influence was huge. But wasn't his becoming a clan guy also a branding thing? Like, didn't he like form a brand new like reboot version of the clan? Like, yeah. right. Duke thought of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan as the true heirs to the original clan, the one that sprung up after the Civil War. In fact, Duke himself invented the group in 1973. The Knights had no history or heritage and no connection to any of the various clan factions in the United States. Nevertheless, Duke figured that the KKK name would serve as a kind of tailwind for his career as a professional racist. It wasn't like he brought dead Klansmen back to life. He was just like, oh, I'm going to start this new Klan club. Or he joined as a junior Klansman and worked his way up no, from the mailroom. No. Yeah, right. He decided, like, I am the grand wizard of this new Klan club. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and to some extent, and I don't mean to laugh, because obviously this is a, like a vile, virulent force in American politics and mm-hmm. American thought. Yeah. And yes, I will just say for the record, I am a firm believer in the First Amendment. And if you hate people, it is 100% your right to express it. Just because it's your opinion doesn't mean it's not completely fucking wrong. And this is like a great example of both a things can, can be true that about. Yes. Um, but I mean, Kevin, do you think the sort of fascination with Duke, you know, during his rise mm-hmm. was because he defied what we thought of as the stereotype, like to use the epithet, like cracker, truck driving, noose wielding, torch bearing, gun toting Klansmen that we sort of remember from like, you know, the old film that we saw and that he was you know put himself out there as this clean cut college debate club type I mean honestly hearing that Tom Mm -hmm. Snyder interview from NBC what's going to happen if we don't preserve white power well I think we're seeing what's happening right now in every major city of this country there are white people uh, great numbers of them who are hurt uh, murdered uh, raped abused by Negroes. Not surprising to me because I still see that stuff happening today where Mm -hmm. they sort of have people on who say things that are just abjectly wrong and sometimes are unchallenged. But it was shocking given the timing of it that like Snyder saw it as being provocative to sort of buddy up with him and ask him about his family football games. Was it because he didn't look like what we think of as what a Klan person is supposed to look like? My mind just kind of wandered to, uh, you know, this this thought about um, uh, Face in the Crowd, this 1950s movie about a demagogue, and somebody was talking about it and said, would you recognize the devil if you saw him? Not the one with the pointy horns and the tail, but the one in the clean-cut suit who Mm. talked really well, the real devil. And it's kind of like that where you're like, ah, do you expect him to be overtly offensive, using offensive language left and right? And when he doesn't, it changes. No, he and, does. He just no, uses no, coded offensive language. Did, right. But he doesn't do it in public. And when you come to like looking to see him say that and he doesn't, and you come to see him again and he doesn't, eventually the fear is that people will think, oh, well, then he's not so bad. You warned about Duke. And then when he don't turn out to be this monster, you give him more credit for not being the monster than you would give somebody who's never been a monster. Yeah, so Kevin, it's sort of like giving someone a reward for something they were supposed to do anyway, which is pretend to be a nice person. Right, well, eventually you're like, oh, maybe I was wrong yeah. about him. No, no, you're not wrong And then, him. no, you're not wrong about him because he's <laughs> just, you're just really getting played. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Laura Bricker, Beth Rickey, yeah. who is a big character in the story, she's a you know Republican Party person in Louisiana who really read the tea leaves very early and said, we could lose this whole party to racists if we don't 
put up a wall here if we don't say no. And she sort of conducted her own investigation into Duke, Mm -hmm. started showing up at events where he was speaking in secret. You know, she and her friend bought all of the books, the the racist books they were selling from his legislative office. Yeah. And then she also decided as part of her look into him to cozy up to him. He was reading his book Finders Keepers to me over the phone. I'm like thinking I've got to do this for the sake of history. And he's reading this how to keep a man and how to keep a man interested in you. And he said, oh, one way to do it is to attack him publicly at the state capitol. And I'm like, I said, David, I don't go out with Nazis or something like that. What did you think of Beth Rickey and all of her tactics here? I loved Beth Rickey because she starts off where she's going in. And and I loved the description of how they're like, well, first we started with this easy book about like the Holocaust not happening. And hey, they had it. And then (laughs) we went on to this other one and they're like, oh, we don't have that. But well, we might be able to get it for you. And it just keeps going on. But she was so wise to his ways as you're listening to the story of how she starts with all the books and they're they're getting like every book that, you know, somebody that's like doing like your white supremacist 101 course with David Duke is getting. And they, it wasn't very hard to get them. And then going on to the point where she's out having lunch with him on a regular basis. And he was at one point singing like the impossible dream song to her. Yeah, yeah. And who knew white supremacists like Mike and the Mechanic so much? Yeah. <laughs> so weird. But was, what was interesting is she herself noted that the longer that she was around him, she would have to go home at night and sort of remind herself of who he was. Because it was like, I want to call him like the wolf in sheep's clothing, but he's not like a sheep because he's scarier than a sheep. Do you right. know what I mean? But he's yeah. got that same yeah. sort of slick chameleon sort of persona going on where you know what he is. Right. His followers know what he is, but he's got the hair going where he looks clean cut and he's like, you know, speaking eloquently and and he's covering it up. And so I loved the fact that Beth Rickey saw through all of that. I want to talk a little bit about the politics, Toby, because there's no escaping it. This was also a big thread in 13th, which we reviewed right, yeah. in the last podcast. Heard some of the same tape. We actually heard it. Who was the tape we heard again? Repeated. Lee Atwater. Yeah, we heard Lee that Atwater. exact same tape repeated here. You start out in 1954 by saying nigger, nigger, nigger. By 1968, you can't say nigger. That hurts your backfire. So you say stuff like uh, force busing states rights and all that stuff and you're getting so abstract now you're talking about cutting taxes and all of these things you're talking about are totally economic things and the byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than white toby can you talk a little bit about how duke sort of bucks this thing i mean we talked about this on last week's show that, you know, initially Democrats kind of like owned racism in the South proudly and then they became Republicans. But in the meantime, there is this political strategy about using race and how Duke both exemplifies that and also bucks it at the same time. Can you talk about that a little bit? I think I think the thing with Duke is that he tried to find like, how is he going to get his message out to people? And he starts by standing on a box at LSU and then he starts his little clan thing. And then I think he realizes that if, if I'm actually going to get like a significant movement going, I've, I've got to make myself more accessible, you know? And I think he, it was interesting to hear Lee Atwater sort of try and distance himself from Duke because Duke basically does exactly what Lee Atwater's talking about, which is that he starts to find other ways to talk about race 
rather than just going out and saying it. He's a little bit more blatant, I think, than most people would be comfortable with. Like that whole NAAWP. The National Association for the Advancement of White People. White people. Because, by the way, we're so far behind everyone else. We whites. <laughs> it's tough. What the fuck was that? I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> we have no advantages. Branding, everybody. Branding. <laughs> wow. Oh, also also the multiple references to shoot white as an ethnicity. Yeah. Which is insane. Yeah. <laughs> by the way, anybody who's out here who doesn't understand why that's wrong, read a book. Don't ask me about it. Read a book. All right, Toby, go ahead. <laughs> so when he started becoming sort of a national figure was when I was in DC working at a political magazine. And it was pretty clear what he stood for, even if he was sort of couching it in different terms. Uh, like he was the racist candidate, right? Mm -hmm. And he, unlike others, didn't really make too many bones about it. Like he would talk about it kind of in coded words, but if somebody called him out, he's like, yeah, I'm for white people. Like white people have done everything that's good for America and, you know, we're superior. And he had this crazy story about going to India and seeing a, like an orphan girl and thinking that was the future of America was a orphaned mongrel, you know, something or other. I mean, it's just- words, not yours, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Tr- You're welcome, trust me. Toby. Thank you. <laughs> Wouldn't want that tape taken out of context. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I was working in a group that was covering all these elections. Mm-hmm. And at this point, he was going up against a guy uh, who I believe his name was Edwin Edwards, who was the Democrat running for governor in Louisiana. Yes, that's correct. And he, at the time, I don't know if, if he'd been convicted or just indicted or just accused, but but anyway, there, there was a whole thing about bribery uh, around riverboat gambling in Louisiana. And so he was basically known as being corrupt. And there was this great bumper sticker that was making the rounds in Louisiana that said, vote for the crook. It's important, hmm. exclamation point. When I think about David Duke, it was really like he would he would talk in the coded language, but he was not he wouldn't back away from it either. When he was like pushed on it, you know, he wouldn't use crass language, but at the same time, he wouldn't back away from his white supremacist beliefs. And that's what I think made him different and kind of attracted that kind of following was for people who are like, oh, yeah, like this is the guy who's not afraid of it. Right. Like he's willing to say it. It's not code. It just is what it is. Yeah. I was really surprised when you know you hear like Lee Adwater, who I think was chairman of the National Republican Committee, came out and was like wanted to get rid of David Duke. And, you know, it sounds like he's a he's, uh, crusader for justice. Crusader for he's justice. Not. <laughs> no, it's because in his brand of politics... Race is a dog whistle, and it's not a bullhorn. So to be so overt as David Duke, it's like, hey, man, you're ruining this for us. Yeah, you're going to like expose what we're actually doing. You're going too far on this. Except, yeah. no, they don't. I actually don't think they think he's like going too far. He's just going to expose what it is he's they're going, actually doing. Yeah. Because he's running on exactly the same issues. He's calling it the economy when it's actually about race. He's calling it taxes when it's actually about right. race. It's the same shit that's happening now in politics, and... And he was just also saying, and also I hate black people. And, and also I don't believe don't the Holocaust have to say happened. That. Right. You don't have to say that. And Lee Atwater's like, yeah. just, just leave that part of the sentence out, man. Just say the taxes part. It's fine. I really was taken by um, Beth Rickey. Mm-hmm. And Toby, do you have any idea who Beth Rickey actually is? I just Googled her because I, they didn't have any tape of her. So I was wondering what happened. And I know that she she passed away. Yeah. But. Yeah. Well, she was she is the niece of Branch Rickey, who 
uh, sports fans know Branch Rickey was the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Really? And he signed Jackie Robinson, huh. which was pretty groundbreaking. Right. So the, the Branch family does have some sort of legacy in the area of social justice and racial equality. And so the idea that she would be confronted with uh, a figure like David Duke makes a lot of sense. Plus, you know, she's, you know, party loyalist. She's, I guess, what would have once been called a Rockefeller Republican, fairly moderate, has a lot of pride in the party and felt very alarmed by the fact that Duke was going to use the infrastructure of the party system to try to gain power. You know, to be fair, the same thing happened with Democrats in the 50s and 60s in Mm -hmm. the South. Mm -hmm. So she's like looking at this and saying, I don't want this to happen to my party. Right. And it does. It actually reminds me a little bit of, uh, we were watching Mrs. America, the Mm -hmm. fabulous show on Prime. It's Mrs. America. Mrs. America, yeah, yeah. About Phyllis Schlafly. And I will say, you know, Phyllis Schlafly is no hero of mine. Mm -hmm. The show does an outstanding job sort of painting a very similar portrait to how the party embraced really abhorrent people in order to not lose voters and how Phyllis Schlafly ended up being part of that machine, even Uh though that wasn't necessarily her original intent. But you see also even Phyllis Schlafly grappling with all these racists showing up. You know, she here she is just trying to push her totally homophobic and anti feminist agenda yeah and all these racists show up and try to ruin it for her you know what i mean yeah (laughs) well look there's also a lesson in political non-aggression here when we talk about at the state level which party members perhaps object to a figure but they hold their tongue because the offending politician's currency is actually his or her voters oh i've never heard of anything like that happening in contemporary politics do not want to alienate and they think that they can get (laughs) and then you reap what you sow that's right now laura we do hear from this holocaust survivor uh who confronts david duke at the holocaust exhibit can you just talk about a little bit about how uh josh levin weaves her into the story and what's interesting about that yeah well i think that josh levin as a host i love liked how we were a little bit into the podcast before he talked about his own Jewish heritage and his connection to the story and why he felt, you know, personally like this, obviously this is something that was important to him, but then he's talking about when David Duke goes to this Holocaust exhibit and he's walking around and everybody that's there knows that he's you know, like, oh, it didn't happen. Oh, it was exaggerated. Oh, it wasn't as bad as you're all saying. And this woman is tapping him on the shoulder and he's just totally blowing her off. And it wasn't until the end of the story that that Josh sort of says, yeah, and by the way, she's a family friend of mine and I know her very well. Right. Obviously, you need to mention that when it's somebody you know, but at the same time, I think that also it, it makes him the right person to be telling this story, I think. Well, it does. I mean, he grew up in Louisiana. We hear about his, you know, realizing that like maybe they didn't belong there when all this stuff was happening. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out season four of Slow Burn from Slate about David Duke, Laura Bricker, thumbs up or thumbs down from this latest season of Slow Burn? Yeah, I would say thumbs up. Not that I thought I would want to listen to anything about David Duke, but given where we are at our current time in this country, I think it's important to listen to the story about David Duke. You know, in 2016, everybody thought Trump wasn't going to get elected. And guess what? He did. And back in 1989, nobody thought David Duke was going to get elected. And guess what? He did. And I think this podcast is a really good job kind of going into the story of how Duke got elected, but also his background. And there's some really interesting parts about his college 
and like Free Speech Alley where he used to hang out. This podcast, Slow Burn, does it again with a very timely, detailed story that relates to not only history, but our current time. Sounds like Buddy likes it too. Thumbs up from Buddy. Thumbs up from Buddy. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for season four of Slow Burn about David Duke. Yeah, I give it a, a, an enthusiastic thumbs up. I thought it was really interesting. There's a lot of stuff that I, I didn't know. It's an interesting time to be listening to this about a, a period where there was a, a guy who who rose to considerable heights of power, even though he never won statewide office, by being basically openly racist, and and that was his appeal. So I think you know there's stuff to be learned. What about you, Kevin? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Slow Burn season four? I'm a thumbs up for Slow Burn. It's a really interesting pick for his story. Because this is um, uh, a case of an individual who we all we all should have known better about. But it also says a lot about the people who surrounded him and who supported him, and for the reasons said and unsaid for that support. So it's it's a good take because it seems like when we get to 2020, it has been kind of a long road, a slow burn to get to a point where, you know, so much is changing. So it's a good time to look back at some of those different aspects of that. Yeah, I'm giving it a thumbs up too. I do have one production quibble that I just want to put out there. Yeah. Whoever is mixing this show, the pause you're putting between the narration and the tape is making me crazy. It's like narration and they say what we're about to hear and then there's like a half second and then they play the tape. Kevin, did you notice that? No. No, only you. Anyway, do. it's making me crazy. <laughs> Please just like mix your clips a little tighter with your narration. Please. Just want a little more Leon Nathok. Uh, yeah, I, I do like Josh Levin, but I do miss Leon. He's over at, um, of course, uh, Luminary now making yeah. fiasco, which is great. I think the idea that this is a look back is actually a mischaracterization. David Duke is winning, guys. He is winning. He has the ear of the people surrounding the current president of the United States. He has become once again a somewhat influential figure as white supremacists are openly walking down the streets, literally carrying torches, literally carrying long guns and wearing Aloha shirts to Black Lives Matter rallies. David Duke is not a thing of the past that we could laugh at and joke about like we did back in the 80s. He is a relevant and terrifying figure. And so is the sentiment that keeps bringing him to the forefront. Uh, If anyone thinks that his brand of completely blatant Holocaust deniarism and white supremacy is a thing of the past, you're wrong. You're wrong. Just look around you. And that's what makes us a timely podcast. So, yes, I'm going to give season four of Slow Burn a big thumbs up. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. All right, Kevin, before we move on, we have some business we need to take care of. Yes. What is on our Patreon right now? Well, first of all, before you answer that, there's the after show, which we already talked about. Right. We're going to talk a little bit more about making this podcast into a video. We're also going to spoil the plots of a couple things we've watched recently and discuss them. Uh For me, it's normal people. I also want to ask you what happens at the end of The Invisible Man, because I was too scared to watch the end of it. (laughs) (laughs) What else have we got in our Patreon right now? Well, we've got the latest Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast. About the bling ring. The bling ring. Uh, Laura last week had her latest episode of Leave It, Leave to, it Bricker. to Bricker. 
with uh, Mary Weaver, Beaver Reliever. Pest Reliever. Uh, woodchuck Reliever. Mm. It, it, it goes places. Okay. It's and, a journey. And then we have a very good episode of Married with Podcast. There's no the such thing as a bad episode of Married with Podcast. This is true. Yeah, people love Married with Podcast. I know I do. It's very cathartic for me. I cried recently when we were taping it, remember? It's because I stepped on your foot. <laughs> Kevin, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Yeah, our Patreon patron saints are Carrie Savage and Gretchen L. Jones. Bless you. <laughs> I wonder if people feel different after they've been blessed by they you. They feel angelic. <laughs> they feel saintly. They feel saintly, yes, mm. absolutely. Mm. When do you get like Faith Ball into our Patreon patron saints of the week? <laughs> She is actually saintly. Who? Faith Ball. My mom. Faith Ball. Oh, fuck. I'm like, you said Toby's mom? She is saintly. I did. I was like, no, it's Deborah. When did you get it? When did we get Firefighter Ken into the uh, Patreon patron saints of the week? Well, you know what they call Fireman Ken at my old job? They used to call him Long Suffering Ken because of his life. Because of his life with me, they'd be like, Oh, there's long suffering Ken because he wow. has to live with Laura. That's not yeah. good for your brand. I know that sounds Laura. about right. <laughs> I know. I don't like that. I know. I was that li- sounds sexist. I was like, listen, long suffering Ken has an exciting life because I'm around. I'm just going to say right. it would be much more boring if I wasn't here. I got him the best Father's Day uh, shirt this week. I just have to tell you all what it said. Mm-hmm. What it did say? anybody see it? No. Ooh. It was it was customized. It said, "Dear Cat Dad." Thank you for being our dad. If some other man was our dad, we'd piss on his shoes, claw his face, and go find you. Love, Rocky, Felix, and Zelda. Nice. Wow. Will he be wearing that shirt to the firehouse? <laughs> well, I, I kept finding it put in various like places around our house. And I like was like, the trash. I was like, why isn't that going upstairs? Why is it like in this little corner in the kitchen? <laughs> you know, the, the custom t-shirt seemed like a really good idea at the time. And then you realize I should have just made a coffee mug. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Toby, did you get anything anything good for Father's Day? My setup for actually doing podcasts and even more so for doing the new Facebook thing mm-hmm. uh, is not particularly good. So I got a new desk. Nice. Ooh. To have, get, get the setup going on. Yeah. Nice. Wow. Very exciting. Kevin got $5 that I stole from his wallet and you put just, in a card. <laughs> such a bitch. You have gotten some very fancy gifts this year. It's true. I got this nice watch. Yes. You got a trip to Ireland that you weren't allowed to take because yeah. of the pandemic. So I'm in my mind, I'm there right so now. So let's be real. That $5 has the same value as those other yes, things because exactly. we never get to leave the house anymore. All right. Should we uh, continue on with this podcast? I would prefer it if we did. Let's do it. We were awakened by a voice and a bright light. It was a real sense of evil in the house. He made me tie up my husband. He ordered her to put dishes on my back and say, if I hear these dishes fall down, I'm going to kill your family. It was one of the scariest and least remembered crime sprees in California. Blogger Michelle McNamara became fascinated with the tale of a suspect first known as the East Area Rapist, who she dubbed the Golden State Killer. Michelle looked at it from the hopeful, putting puzzles together, trying to make sense of violence. I was in search of a man who was attacking women and girls throughout Northern California. 
And the great tragedy of this case to me is that it's not better known. HBO's six-part adaptation of McNamara's book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, pulls together the narratives of the criminal's many victims, the cops frustrated by the cold case, and the army of armchair detectives dabbling into a five-decade unsolved mystery. The Irvine Police Department investigating an apparent homicide. He's called the Golden State Killer. This case is huge. Michelle would actually go to the crime scene and walk the case. Geographic connections, DNA profiles, genealogy websites. The first time she called me, I thought, hmm, she knows her stuff. So I started telling her things about my investigation. But at the heart of the documentary is McNamara, who died before completing her manuscript. Just as the book filled with details of horrific crimes included passages of McNamara's own life, the documentary leans heavily on her story to explain the journey to publication and the arrest of a suspect. Now, the first episode of I'll Be Gone in the Dark aired on Sunday, but HBO provided us with screeners for the first three episodes of I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Although there's really no spoiler to give away. If you'd rather just get to our thumbs up or thumbs down reviews, go to the estimated time code in our show notes. Now, Laura, you wrote in your notes that you're probably the only one in the group who hasn't read the book. That is not true. Oh, <laughs> I haven't read it. Kevin has not yeah. read the book either. Yeah. But you were a little bit afraid to delve into this story. Why is that? I was because, I mean, we watch a lot of crime shows. We listen to a lot of crime podcasts. I've been involved in the crime world, but this particular case is just, it's so random and it's so violent And when you know that detail of the case, and then you also know the mental health impact that it had on Michelle McNamara. And and then I'd see people that would like read the book or listen to the book and they'd be like, I can't sleep at night now. And I'm like, I don't know if I can go there. So I've put off reading this book kind of because of that. I will tell you, I read this book when I was on vacation with my two sons and Kevin was at home. Mm-hmm. Remember, I took them to Mexico last year yeah. and I read it in uh, the paper copy because we had gotten a galley copy. And I will tell you, Laura Bricker, the Golden State Killer is hands down like the crimes committed by this guy are the very, very scariest version of these kinds of crimes you could possibly imagine. I heard a noise, but at 15 years old, you always hear noises in your house when your parents aren't home, so I I didn't think much of it. I I stopped. I I do remember stopping and and listening, and I didn't hear anything else, so I continued to play. It wasn't very much longer, maybe a couple minutes, that I felt um, a presence next to me. And I looked up, and um, then I felt a knife at my throat. Like, it's not just the sort of waking up in the middle of the night with a flashlight in your face, and then, you know, you get raped, and your husband has to, like, lie there with dishes on his back, and maybe you get murdered. It is literally, he is stalking these people for months beforehand, going into their homes. Mm -hmm. He would, like, take things from one room and put them in another room. He would, like, disconnect electrical things. He would, like, basically be in your house before the crime so many times. Yeah. It's freaking terrifying. I remember calling Kevin and being like, Kevin, um, we're getting an alarm system on our yeah. house. It was terrifying. Yeah. Toby, what do you think about like this, just the scariness? I mean, I think that's part of the reason why this case is so fascinating, right? Because 
it's scary. This crime, this this particular criminal, unlike even other serial killers, there's a scariness to him that is really kind of like new and different, right? Two things. One is, yeah, I mean, the scariness of the crimes is about as scary as it gets, as far as I'm concerned. It's like these home invasion absolutely brutal crimes. But I don't, beyond that, it doesn't really seem, like this whole case doesn't seem super interesting to me because there's really, you don't really know much about him. The only thing that's interesting beyond like how brutal things are, if that's something that captures your interest, is that they can't catch him. Mm. That's why I, I think the decision to focus a lot on Michelle is a good decision Because I don't, unless you're just going to go through horrible crime after horrible crime after horrible crime, there's really not much to say about the guy. Hmm. The story is really in trying to figure out who he is. And that's where Michelle comes in is a good focal point, not just her work, but for work that other people were doing at various levels of effectiveness. I think uh, in the book, and I don't want to like lean too heavily in the book because that's not what we're reviewing right now. But it does tie together these different threads of things that all the witnesses said. And there were things that were known about him. One is that he had a tiny penis, which like everybody really liked. That kept like every every single, you know, he, he'd be described mm-hmm. as fat and he'd be described as thin. He'd be described as blonde. He'd be described as dark haired. He'd be described as puffy faced. He'd be described as, you know, whatever. But mm-hmm. it was always different. But the one consistent thing was he always had like a tiny penis, which is like a weird but also sort of schadenfreude detail of the whole thing, um, which I just always found sort of interesting as being the only notable thing about this guy who well, committed... Well, pop psychologists might say, well, there's I one know, of your... but people yeah. literally saw him jumping over fences. Yeah. They saw him riding bikes. They saw him running through neighborhoods, not just people who were victimized by him. Uh, but getting back to the documentary, Kevin, there's one thing that I think we sort of share as a little bit of a knock on the way this is structured. Mm-hmm. Michelle McNamara is and was a talented, likable, lovely human being in every regard. Right. But it's almost like the filmmakers don't think we're going to know that or believe it just by showing us, right? Right. They keep telling us. Like, I I, I thought the introduction of Michelle was pretty heavy handed. I saw her confidence growing. It was really exciting to have someone who was, you're in love with someone and they're doing something and you can see how excited and energized they are about it. And that makes you excited and energized. I'm amazed I'm still funny. I'm amazed I'm still funny because I'm in love. I'm in love. I'm in love. Yes, I am. The first half hour of this six-part story about a serial killer has to do with people telling us how wonderful she is and what a great writer she was and how she changed all this other stuff. Instead of letting us discover that ourselves along the way... Which we do. Which we do. Right. What's fascinating to me about this case is that is rich with so many clues. And it really seems to me that it's just time, energy, and curiosity. And that, um, and frankly, it should be solved. I mean, it just should be. I gotta tell you, honestly, I became a little resentful because they really were pushing this hard. Mm. And I feel you know, it actually took me till the third episode to kind of get over that right. and start seeing Michelle in, as, as sort of herself and not as the way that everybody is portraying her. Yeah. And that's not to say that she isn't, wasn't a lovely person and isn't worthy of being revered. It just came off like too much of a Valentine yeah. 
for what the subject matter is. Now, it's important because, I mean, I see that that was one, from what I hear from everybody, that was one of the more important elements of her book was the biographical stuff. Right, but she doesn't talk about how wonderful she is in her own no, book. No, this is true. No. But she shows it in the book, and I think the documentary right. shows it. As opposed to telling. Exactly. Show and don't tell, and there was a lot of telling right off the front. Like, I love Patton Oswalt. I don't know if we had to see all of his routines, you know, talking about how wonderful his wife is. By the time we get to the, again, the third episode, where we've had some time to live their lives, that we see them as both, I think, as who they are. Lovely people. Lovely people. And he's very supportive. And she is determined, but also very loving. I just wasn't crazy about the way that was handled. I actually agree with you. And it's funny because I, you know, I loved the book. Mm And I actually, you know, I, I know some of the people who worked on the book and who've worked on the case and the story, and I like really like all of them. Mm-hmm. And it really is astonishing to me, like her talent for not just for writing, but also for actual investigating so much so. And we'll talk about this in a second, that all these cops were cooperating with her, yeah. which you and I know is rare and like really speaks to a specific kind of trust trust building yeah yeah so she does in the book she does show that she is a trustworthy deep kind of scarred and interesting and layered and sad person uh-huh. and the documentary does show that and so i actually would have cut that whole for i almost felt like um you know, I know that Pat Oswalt uh, has the rights to the book. It almost felt like the that Liz Garbus felt like I want to set it up this way to make no mistake about it. But you can't make a mistake about it because she actually was all those things. I actually yeah. found that a little bit of a flaw, too. Um, Laura, were you surprised that Michelle McNamara, for all intents and purposes, an amateur investigator, a ho- an at-home investigator who's scouring the internet at night, who's writing a blog, you know, celebrity connections aside, was able to gain the trust of so many, not just cops, but witnesses? Like, you and I both know like that's how almost impossible that is. Well, I think that it didn't happen overnight. Uh, you know, when we see her establish a connection with Paul Holes and, you know, he is investigating the case and she calls him and he, he says he was quite reticent to talk to her. But she did what I think any good journalist, investigative reporter does that is is doing the job in a way to kind of nurture sources and cultivate sources. She just kept talking to him and she'd tell him, like you kind of trade information. And that's one of the ways when you're a reporter and you're out working a beat that you start to get information out of your sources. Like you find out some information and you share it with them. They may not share information with you for a while, but you keep going back and sharing information with them and you have credible information. Eventually they're going to start to give you a little nugget of information. And we saw that dynamic grow between her and and this this particular investigator. But also with the woman, you know, I loved the citizen detectives, the social worker. Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, so what you're thinking is that I could sit there. You could sit there and go through them. Okay. I just can't let them leave my Right. Hand. Right. How many pages are there altogether? Like, like four or five thousand. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's big. Yeah. It's all the rates. Right. It's every, all 50 rates. Wow. I should make a trade with you today. You let me take this today, and I'll let you take the cases today. Well, and then we give them back. And then we give them back. I would do that. I would do that, but we have to give them back. I can't believe I'm doing this. She was like the gatekeeper to a whole nother part of this story, and that took some time. So the way that she introduced herself to them was like, hey, I noticed you on this forum, and... 
you seem to make good points and you sound, you know, reasonable. Basically, you don't sound crazy. Uh, but she said it in a more diplomatic way. And again, it started this sort of back and forth relationship to the point that then when they're meeting in person and the social worker has all of these police files, at first she's like, there's no way you should be seeing these police files. And she's like, you know what? I trust you. Take the files. Toby, one of the things that was interesting to me about the way this is put together, obviously, you know, with Pat and Oswald uh, sort of being in it and part of it and, you know, the kind of, you know, her family is in it and part of it. They have access to a lot of Michelle's personal materials. They have access to her draft. They have access to her voicemails. Hi, Cliff. My name is Michelle McNamara. I'm a crime writer in Los Angeles. I am doing a series on unsolved crimes. Hi, Kate. This is Michelle McNamara. Hey, it's Michelle. Hi, Michelle. Hi. They have access to footage that she filmed in these ride-alongs, you know, with the social worker and in her own investigation. You know, there's access to video interviews that she did, probably stuff that was just like on her own computer, is able to sort of be like woven in and out of here to tell the story. And, you know, I know that you did the book on the deep dive and you've read the book. It really is. I I was telling Kevin earlier, it's um, not dissimilar to um, Catch and Kill, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. Ronan Farrow's narrative, not just of the story, but his reporting of the story. There is it's really a lot like that, which is about her intersection with the story and how she did it and what she was doing and how it sort of wove into her life. Do you think the documentary makes good use of all of these other materials like the text of her text messages and the voice memos and so forth? Yeah, I think so. It's a little bit hard to picture watching this without having read the book because it's basically it's the same story and i was actually while while you guys were talking i was thinking like kevin frequently says you know whose story is this and this is clearly made to be michelle's story and you're kind of finding out about her through her investigation of this of this case so yeah i mean i i do i do feel and i i agree with you guys that it, it starts off pretty strong and not in a good way but that you do, you do get a good sense of her and sort of, I guess, the charisma she has. Whether you feel like that's the right frame for the story, I think the stuff that they have of hers is used pretty effectively. Do I need to hear Patton Oswalt do little bits about how much he loves his wife and how his wife is too good for him? I'm not, I'm not sure what that added. Could you get more of a sense of their relationship just through these texts that he sends her where he's exactly. being really supportive in these situations where it's probably quite frustrating that she's, you know, so single-minded on this stuff. And, you know, I guess part of this comes from the, reading the book, but that she, you know, to the exclusion of other things that you would expect your partner to be kind of around for. And they bring up the thing about Thanksgiving where they're having Thanksgiving dinner, but she's going to go up and work on her stuff. And her friend cooks everything at her house. Right. And that's not a one-off. Like, that's happening all the time. But Patton Oswalt is like, you know, at least the examples they show is like very encouraging and very, you know, supportive of those decisions and doing whatever he can to make that work. I found that very moving, actually. There's this whole passage where he says, you know, I recognize in you some behaviors that I had Mm -hmm. when I was finishing my book. And you think he's going to talk about like something else, Mm -hmm. (laughs) something maybe not positive. But instead, he's like talking about the fact that she's letting herself be distracted by taking their daughter to soccer and making dinner. And he's like, I've got all all of that covered you just go finish your book I found that I almost like burst into tears when I saw that I'm like that is the kind of support that like 
most marriages don't have. Yeah. And it just felt so wonderful. To Thanks, sort of, Patton, for ruining it. I know that. For us. But there is also the sense of dread because, you know, the one criticism I had around the narrative about Michelle McNamara when the book came out mm-hmm. was, and I don't, I don't want to like, I obviously don't know all the facts, but I feel like the documentary is going there. You know, she died of an accidental overdose of a combination of drugs she was taking. One of them was fentanyl, which we all know is like an incredibly deadly narcotic. Um, she was also taking Adderall and you know Xanax and all this other stuff. She had this like, cocktail of drugs she was taking. And, and we see in her text messages here that she was using them to sort of like stay on task and to sort of stay present and all that stuff. You do sort of get more hints about kind of the dread of what's mm-hmm. going to happen to her in this than I was expecting. And well, I to, felt that at the end of episode three. But to well, me, that's yeah. important because that yeah. is part of the story. And I do feel like after she died and when the book was finished uh, by Paul Haynes, who's in the documentary, mm-hmm. who when you read the book, it's just, Laura, I'm just going to spoil one thing for you about the book that's so extraordinary. Yeah. The parts that Michelle wrote, she talks about working with this online sleuth and she only identifies him as the kid. Yeah. Because she has no expectation that she's going to die, obviously. And the idea is that he's doing research and he's doing all this data work and he makes all these maps and all this cool stuff. And then she dies and he ends up writing the rest of the book. Oh. And it's it's extraordinary because he sort of comes out of the gate and identifies himself. He's like... I'm, my name is Paul. You may know me as the, as the kid. He didn't say that mm. exactly, but it's an extraordinary moment, like in the book itself. Yeah, good thing he could write. But because yeah. of the way the book was brought to press, mm. I really do feel like we didn't talk enough about how she died. And I really hope the documentary goes there. I'm sorry I, if that's too dark. It but seems to be signposting that it will. It's important that it's going to deal with that. But to me, it's also yeah. something that that like her death can tell a story in and of itself that is important. Well, if you want to make not the, if you want to make this adaptation, Michelle story yeah then you have to deal with that and deal with it honestly because you know what is it we always say when you do a piece of nonfiction, you either betray your subject or you betray the audience right and so are they going to betray michelle by telling all of her secrets or are they going to betray the audience by holding them back well i was going to say i think that they are doing a good job foreshadowing that this is where we're going i mean you have patton talking about when in the middle of the night she wakes up and she's like you know such a light sleeper now and she'll like run out of the house or she jumped up and she's on like high high alert and then there was another part where we're talking about who left the door unlocked in the house and don't leave the door unlocked in the house and then Towards the second half of that third episode, we were seeing a lot of signs that they were going down the road of being, I would say, fairly forthcoming about her mental decline as the research into this book gets even deeper than she was before. And I I felt like that was exactly where this was going. I mean, I, I honestly, I'll say it again. I don't think there's anything shameful about the way Michelle McNamara died, but I think it's a story that's Agreed. important to tell. Agreed. Because those drugs are available. They are prescribed. And she was clearly coping with a lot in addition to being on deadline for a book, which all four of us have been. Right. Toby, the, the feeling of being on deadline for I mean, a like, book. She, they are showing that. Yeah, they're As showing opposed it. to telling. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But, but Toby, I mean, I, I think that one thing that our one thing our listeners may not understand, I mean, they may understand 
how it would be easy to be depressed if your parents die and how it would be easy to be depressed about, you know, working on a book that's so dark and a subject matter so dark. But like, I don't mean to like make light of it, but the like the looming deadline of a publisher is also like a dreadful experience. Had Toby, have you ever had that experience? Um, I, I, I can't say that I've ever been like going down to the minute, like this idea that I have 54 hours yeah. and then I've got to have, like I've never been in that situation. We have, right, Kevin? <laughs> Kevin and I'm I thinking done, about my Facebook watch video right now, as a matter of fact. Kevin yeah. and I have done that exact thing where we've booked a hotel room so we could finish. Remember? We've done, we did that twice. You did that for me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we Remember when we went to New York once and hold up in oh, my sister's yeah, apartment yeah, when right. she was away just so we could yeah. finish finish the stupid book yeah. and make the deadline. My concern yeah. about where this is headed is if it falls into this, she went into such dark places that this is the result. Yeah. Because I think that that was kind of what happened with Heath Ledger when he played the Joker and it's like he, you know, he accessed deep parts of a soul that no man. And it's like, that seems to me to be such a shallow read. Yeah. And sort of discounts the actual deal with these drugs, basically. Yeah. I mean, it's a powerful, addictive drugs. So I, I would be disappointed if they went in that direction. I, I hope they don't. I think there's the people who are involved probably have better sense than that. Right. But I do think that's a temptation. You know, it, it kind of ties everything. It ties her her death to all these deaths that she was investigating yeah. in a way that I don't think is genuine. No, and I also don't want to give the Golden State Killer credit for also killing Michelle McNamara. That's not what happened, right? right? It's not. Right. And she was clearly a wonderful and warm and smart person who took the role of armchair detective to a, a place from it being not important to a place where it could actually make a difference and be important. And she actually elevated the role of these actual armchair detectives doing good work. You know, I think about the Bear Brook armchair detectives. I mean, those these cases are very tied together. A lot of the same folks. Yeah, a lot you of the same the people. Here, yeah. yeah, a lot of the same people are involved in both cases because, of course, the Bear Brook case is the one that developed the... The one that at first used the technique that ended up solving this case. Mm. Anyway, well, we should probably do what we do. Let our listeners know, should they check out I'll Be Gone in the Dark? New six-part documentary premiering on HBO just this week. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Do you think our listeners will enjoy this documentary? Thumbs up or thumbs down for you? I think that our listeners will enjoy this documentary. I would give it a thumbs up with this sort of, you know, I don't want to call it trigger warning, but just sort of, just a warning. This is, it's pretty intense in terms of this particular crime, this killer, and the emotional impact that it has on Michelle as she is researching this case and really becomes totally immersed in it. So it's pretty heavy. It's well done. I loved the use of the computer where they showed like searching and and typing. And, you know, they had they had a good sort of B-roll that they used while the person was narrating and while she was narrating in her own voice. So I would say thumbs up, but just um, heads up, you're going to need to watch something kind of light when you're done with this. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for I'll Be Gone in the Dark on HBO. Mike. My guess is that most people will probably like it more than I do. I, I give it a thumbs up. And I wish I could put my finger on exactly what the issue is for me. It's less than the sum of its parts in some ways. And I don't know if it has to do with pacing and the fact that I, I just wasn't feeling much narrative momentum at times. I think they do a, a pretty good job balancing the amount of time they spend with Michelle and the amount of time they spend on the actual crimes of the Golden State Killer. But it wasn't the kind of thing where it, when it was over, I was like, oh, I can't wait till the next one. 
So I, you know, I give it a thumbs up. I, I, th- I think it's well done. I, I just kind of feel like there, there was something that was slightly off, and I think it's probably that sort of inconsistency of pacing with these two main streams that they have going in it. What about you, Kevin? I'm feeling better about this now that we've talked about. Now that we've talked it out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I went all three ways: up, down, sideways. While watching these episodes. While watching these episodes, like when it gets to the meat of the cases, it's where it really hits its stride unlike you know man in the window that podcast this really achieves the horror of the crimes with some really thoughtful interviews with so many of the victims and you get to see the different ways that they've sort of processed it and handled it in general i'm uneasy with stories in which it's portrayed that the most interesting thing about the crime is that someone is writing about it you know, the nonfiction writer's journey is sometimes a really great way to tell a story, like Catch and Kill, All the President's Men. You got to get to see the procedure behind it. That can be an interesting way to frame it, um, so long as it doesn't get too self-absorbed and self-congratulatory. I haven't read the book, so I'm not burdened by having read it, but it just seems that it's been a real challenge to bring to the screen some of the better works of true crime from the past decade, that they've been really uneven. And the best stuff has been the little-known stuff. So I don't know about this one. I'm going to give it a thumbs up just because I don't want to pan it. Yeah, I like it. Um, I'm going to give it a thumbs up. I think Toby's description is apt. And here's the difference uh, between, say, a catch and kill and Mm -hmm. this documentary. Yeah. Michelle McNamara died. If this had happened, if she had finished this book and published this book and this book had been made into a documentary... I guarantee you, having read Michelle McNamara's book, that the in-your-faceness of the Michelle McNamara stuff would not have been the way it is. Probably mm. the director would have said, you have to be in it, just like the publisher did. Yeah. You have to be in it. Your journey is part of it. I but don't have it. Be the publisher tell me, put your story in it. I'm like, I well, actually I think, with that either. I mean, I actually kept thinking as I was watching this how deeply uncomfortable she would be. Yeah, and we hear her with say this that. because I actually I read the book and yeah. she was uncomfortable being in the book and she yeah. writes that in the book. Right. And the drama um, of meeting a deadline is not equivalent exactly. to the drama of a prowler coming into rape. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I do think that one of the things that Toby talks about about the pacing that's interesting is that, you know, so in the book, there are all these moments that are climactic or like cliffhangery. Yeah. The, in the book, this cliffhanger-y. is a, a, yes, I like that a, a okay. great example would be the cufflinks. Yeah. In the book, it's immediately dispelled. Like she, she finds the cufflinks. She thinks she's onto something, but that, what that's really about is her getting an inroads with the cops. And she almost immediately finds out that they're not the right cufflinks in the book. But in the documentary, they actually make it a cliffhanger at the end of the episode. That like she maybe she found case. the guy. Yeah. So they are sort of drawing out these Michelle yeah. lines like fatter and deeper than they need to be. I actually think a more understated telling of her part of the story, the text messages are incredibly affecting. Patton Oswalt's interactions with her are affecting. The most affecting part of it is the cop from the 1980s who we see in the moment and then we see in the first person in real time. The one with like the giant hair. Oh, she's incredible. (laughs) That stuff is affecting. The victim stuff is affecting. And I do think the pacing doesn't match. I think that um, they should have done a better job sort of matching the pacing of the book. Michelle is part of it on its face, so you don't need to be so upfront with it. That being said, I really do like it. I loved the book. I love anything that comes from this book. So I'm going to give it a thumbs up. 
Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of of the the week. week. There may be lots of good places to store your dead iguana, but the freezer at your pizza joint is not one of them. Mm. Inspectors say they found the 80-pound reptile in the deep freeze at Pizza Mambo in West Palm Beach. Employees say a customer gave the iguana to the owner as a gift. It's unclear his intentions, but iguana meat is considered a delicacy by some who purchase iguana sausages and burgers. The lizard sickle was kept in a small freezer chest away from the rest of the food served at the restaurant. But it made no difference to the health inspectors who say there were 26 other violations. They found unsanitized utensils and food covered in mold. There were also signs of mice and roaches, which makes one wonder if a live iguana may have been more helpful than a dead one. So, panel, if it's such a delicacy, why not corner the market? What other reptile-inspired items will soon be on the menu? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Um, Well, I'm going to go with some insect items on the menu, quite honestly, because I don't know about the reptile thing. It kind of freaks me out. What comes into our house every spring that is a big nuisance? Stink bugs. Oh, yes. Well, apparently in Mexico... They actually eat stink bugs, and there is actually a festival honoring stink bugs, which are believed to have medicinal as well as aphrodisiac effects. Nice. Along with high amounts of protein and minerals. They can be dipped in sauce and served live, where the odor of the stink bug is something that only some can fully appreciate. So I think you might have a little side of stink bug with your iguana. I got to say, Laura, you're quite the pitch man for those stink bugs. She's like, they can be served live. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Toby? What other reptile-inspired items will soon be on the menu? I don't know, but I'm sure you can wash it down with some Gatorade. (laughs) Oh, very good. What about you, Kevin? What do you think? A gecko and avocado toast. Oh, you're not going with a um, rosy maple moth on a waffle cone? It's not a reptile, Rebecca. That's true. That's true. Everything's a reptile to me. Yeah. You can say frog legs. Amphibian. (laughs) All right. We should probably end the show on that note. But before we do, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? We do. And I'm going to preface this by saying I picked a cat of the week because there was news this week in the cat world, people. Yes. There was Mm -hmm. a study conducted at Colorado State University that said that women are less likely to date men who like cats cats. Woo! What the hell? I don't disagree with any of that. (laughs) Smoke some more weed out there because I would definitely like some more cats in my life. So I am going to mention, um, I don't know this person's real name. Their Twitter name is Test the Servants with Gold and they have two cats. He's a cat dad. He has two cats, a nice uh, calico cat and a nice black cat sleeping on his computer. And so I was like, let's recognize a cat dad out there. Because, you know, I feel like they're getting some shade from this study. So more cats for the men. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, Laura Bricker, if folks want to send to you their hunky men who also like cats, there's got to be one of them out there. How can they find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you and give you some color suggestions for the background of your video on our new Facebook show. How can they find you on Twitter? They should just probably wait until we actually have our Facebook show come out. (laughs) Well, you know what they can do? We actually, one of our listeners... have you guys seen this? Taylor Schumann wrote an article in narratively.com called The Crime Victim Who's Obsessed with True Crime Shows. Uh-huh. And it, the little sub thing is, after I was injured in a school shooting, I found unexpected comfort in binging grisly TV shows and podcasts, wow. and I'm not the only one. It's kind of it's an interesting perspective on her interest in, in true crime stuff. 
So I'd recommend that. And if you read it and want to tweet to me about it, it's at TobyBallNH. Nice use of the Twitter there, Toby. Kevin, what about you? If folks want to reach out to you and share something with you on Twitter, how can they find you? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, where mostly you can see pictures of my dogs, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join the amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page, by the way, and that's just fine. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You'll get the crime writers on after show right now. Plus married with podcast, Toby Ball's deep dive book club podcast and Laura Bricker's leave it to Bricker podcast. Our theme song was performed by the New York Scott jazz ensemble and used with their permission. Our line editor is the very handsome and very smart and really lovely Henry Lavoie. Our social media maven is fellow Taco Bell stan Meredith Plunkett. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our basement where we keep all of our frozen New Hampshire iguanas. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. later. I'm Rebecca Lavoie and this is Crime <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to do something. I knew it. I knew yeah. it. You had that like that dad joke look <laughs> happen in your body. It's a good look. Partners in, in crime, crime media. media.